Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 475 with Perry Marshall. I'm a little self-conscious about my S sounds because I got a mediocre review in Apple Podcasts by Claquan, S-S-S-S-S, who can't get past my S's and says I need to work with a speech therapist, that my S is too annoying and it hurts the ears. So uh, I'm working on it. I've got uh, a, my pop filter and my windscreen adjusted optimally. I've talked about audio engineers and hopefully that will do the trick so I can get over it and not be crazy self-conscious because there is an important message here today and Perry Marshall is unpacking the 80-20 rule, all of its implications, and that is that 80% of results come from 20% of inputs, but oh boy, there are so many more rich, intricate, delicious details to dig into. So you're going to learn one, what the 80-20 rule is and how it's misunderstood. Two, how you can achieve way more in just five minutes a day. And three, why procrastination demons can reveal your priorities. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep475. So here's Perry's story. Perry Marshall is endorsed in Forbes and Inc. Magazine as one of the most expensive business consultants in the world. His reinvention of the Pareto Principle is published in Harvard Business Review. NASA's Jet Propulsion Labs at the California Institute of Technology use his 80-20 curve as a productivity tool, and his book, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, is mandatory reading in many growing companies. Marketing maverick Dan Kennedy says, if you don't know who Perry Marshall is, it's unforgivable. Perry is an honest man in a field rife with charlatans. I'd forgive you. But Dan Candy wouldn't. Perry has consulted in over 300 industries and served as an expert witness for marketing and Google AdWords litigation. Perry has a degree in electrical engineering and lives in Chicago. Thanks to Perry for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Perry. Perry, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Peter, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're going to have a fun conversation. Thank you. Oh, I definitely think we will. The 80-20 rule is a, a point of passion for me. And I also discovered a point of passion for you. What's the story behind your Evolution 2.0 prize? You've put millions of your own dollars on the line here. 
Well, I put a million of my dollars on the line and uh, $9 million of other people's money <laughs> on the line is what I did. But I have a prize called the Evolution 2.0 prize. It's one of the biggest technology prizes in the world. And it's a $10 million prize that it asks a very specific question, but it's also a general question. The specific question is, where did the genetic code come from? Which sounds like, it's like, well, okay, I suppose that's probably important, but what does that have to do with me now? Well, if we figured this out, it would completely revolutionize all AI and technology and medicine uh, because nobody really knows what is the spark that makes life life, right? We all know the difference between a live puppy dog and a dead puppy dog, right? But nobody really knows what makes those cells tick. And so I came to the conclusion that this is one of the most fundamental questions in science that can be precisely defined. And so I went and raised money for it. And in fact, a month and a half ago, we doubled the price from $5 million to $10 million and made the announcement at the Royal Society of Great Britain. And the story was published in the Financial Times two days later. By the time people get this podcast, the video will be out on the Voices from Oxford uh, website, which is a spinoff of Oxford University. So I felt like this was so important. And if we solve it, if it is solvable, it's worth billions of dollars. If somebody wants to understand that project, which is totally different than 8020, uh, you can go to evo2.org, E-V-O number two.org, and you can find out all about it. Yeah, well, that's cool and it's exciting, and I'm intrigued to see, yeah, what happens there. That's all I have to say about that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you asked. It's a very exciting, interesting rabbit hole, and I'm sure there's a few people that'll be very geeked out about it. So, yeah. Well, well so yeah, let's let's talk about the eighty twenty rule now. So, you mentioned in, in one of your videos about your book that others, I don't know, books or speakers or experts haven't quite explained the eighty twenty rule properly. Could you offer for us your explanation and and tell us, you know, where are other people falling short here? In fact, I think most of the world has gotten it quite wrong. So, the eighty twenty principle says that. 20% of what you do produces 80% of what you get. And the other 80% of what you do only produces 20% of what you get. So it could be how you invest money, how you invest time, how you use people. It could be the volunteers at a church. It could be the production of salespeople in a sales department. It's almost always 80-20. And people have been writing about this for a century, but they've Almost all of them have missed something really important. So, so first, let me just say this is a lot of people have heard of it, and maybe they've heard the story of the Italian economist, Velfredo Pareto, who figured out that in all the different countries he studied, that 20% of the people had 80% of the wealth. And that's true, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's true in sales. It's true in business. It's true... If you're advertising, 20% of your advertising money gets you 80% of the responses. And it's true. And like 20% of the carpet in your house gets 80% of the dirt and wear. <laughs> and 20% of the rooms in your house is where people spend 80% of their time. 
seems like it's the kitchen. The parties, everyone goes to the kitchen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then there's the refrigerator, which is, well, see, so the refrigerator is the 20% of the 20%. This is the part that almost everybody missed, which is inside every 80-20 is another 80-20. And then there's another one. And then there's another one. And there's another one. So let's say you got a church and it's got a thousand members. 80% of the volunteer work gets done by 20% of them, which is 200. Okay. But then we can break it down again. And it's still true that 80% of the 80% is from 20% of the 20%. So what that means is 64% of what gets done gets done by 40 people, which is 20% of 200. Mm -hmm. But then it's true again that 80% of the 80% of the 80% gets done by 20 of the 20 of the 20. Well, that means that half of everything that gets done in a church of a thousand people gets done by eight people. Yeah, that's uh, powerful. <laughs> well, it's true. Appreciate those eight people. <laughs> it's also true of the giving, okay? Eight people give half the money. So it's true of salespeople. If you hire 10 salespeople, two of them will outproduce the other eight. And you didn't do anything wrong. It's just a law of nature. And so it's the clothes that you wear in your closet, and it's the traffic on the roads in your town, and it's the size of checks that you write and the size of, of charges on your credit card statement. And it's income sources in your, like in your family or in your, let's say you got a bunch of customers. It's true almost everywhere. It's like gravity. And it's probably the most useful generalization about life that I know. It's incredibly powerful. And most people have never heard it explained the way that I'm explaining it. With those powers or the, the, the squaring or cubing effects of it. Right. Right. So, yeah. okay, not only is 80-20, but it's also true that 4% produces 64% and 1% produces 50%. And so there's the, in every career, in every budget, in every organization, there are these tiny little levers. There's these tiny little hinges that swing big, big doors. And we're not talking about big doors on tiny houses. You're talking about a full-blown door uh, with, with a tiny hinge you have with you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so it's government and taxes and health care and social problems and politics. It applies to all of it. Whew, boy, I'm just taking it all in, and, and that's, a, that's a whole lot. And maybe just to clarify a little bit. So these numbers, you know, they, they're approximations, right? You're not going to see exactly 80% no. of sales come from exactly 20% of, of salespeople. No, no. So it can be 70-30. It could be 90-10. It could be 95-5. But the interesting thing is there's always the symmetry, okay? So if it's 90-10, which like especially with things online on the internet almost any of this the numbers tend to even be more extreme so if 10 percent of your web pages get 90 percent of the traffic therefore 90 percent of your web pages get 10 percent of the traffic and that's almost guaranteed to be true and so there's this symmetrical disproportion between cause and effect and it's everywhere and when you become aware of it you suddenly realize, oh, okay, well, before I even start, 
I can expect this to happen. So if you start a business next week and a year later, you're hiring 10 salespeople, you already know a year in advance how those 10 salespeople are going to turn out. And it's not because there's anything wrong with the world. This is the is version of the world as opposed to the should be version of the world. If you thought they were all going to be equal, you were living in the should be version of the world, which is wrong. Okay. Well, so let's lay it out there. So let's say, okay, got it. 80, 20, it's real. It's all over the place as a professional. What should we do differently? So let's start with your time. I wrote a book called 80, 20 sales and marketing, but if I may be so bold, anybody, you may, I, I got an Amazon review where a guy said, basically this book is for anybody who works. <laughs> and, and let me rem remind you that all of us in some sense, all of us sell and all of us market and all, all of us persuade. But so, so there's a chapter in the book about time management. So what 8020 says is that if you have eight hours in a day, which is 480 minutes, you can be sure that 20% of those minutes produce 80% of the value and 1% of those minutes produce half the value. So, all right. So let's say that you work eight hours a day and you get paid $25 an hour, right? Which is, so that's $200 a day. Well, you actually earned half of that money in five minutes. Right. Assuming that, you know, you're being paid proportionate to the value that you're creating. Well, what I'm seeing is even if you get paid hourly, the value that your employer got from you, yeah. half of what you did that was good yesterday <laughs> you did it in five minutes okay now now this Quote most <laughs> people are not they're not used to thinking about it you all the people listening i want you to actually stop and think about what you did yesterday what did you do yesterday i'll guarantee there there was a phone call that was three minutes long and that or one minute long it got more accomplished than two hours of you banging around on a Word document or running a bunch of errands or sitting in a meeting somewhere. But once you become aware of it, you start to see some patterns. You're like, wow, you know, I, I just realized that if I spend five minutes a week talking to my 10 biggest clients, I get more done than all the other committee meetings and uh, getting on airplanes combined. Yeah. Or let's say you're a manager and you have 10 people working for you. It's almost certain that you could fire seven of them and the company could actually survive on the other three if you picked the right three to keep. And and that's really important to know if, if you suddenly hit a recession or a customer cancels all their orders and you're suddenly in big trouble, this is how you keep the company alive. It's also almost certain that your very best people are not getting paid what they're worth and everybody else is getting paid more than what they're worth. Yeah. That's also true. And so this will affect every corner of your life if you completely understand it. And what's interesting when you, when you talk about sort of the, the cubing or, or squaring effects with like 4% of inputs impacting 64% of outcomes, it, it's kind of like, even if you're hiring like really, 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 really well, like you maybe already have like the top 20% in like the, 
whatever global workforce. But within that, <laughs> you know, you'll still see that the super superstars are delivering, you know, more than the other folks within that population. So, so that, that makes sense to me that it would just keep going up and up and up or else you wouldn't, you wouldn't see that. It's like, we've, we've already hired the best 20%. So nothing to see here. Well, Steve Jobs said, if you compare the very best taxi driver to an average taxi driver at best, maybe the best taxi driver is three times better than average. But if you're hiring software developers, the best ones are a thousand times better. They're a hundred to a thousand times better. In other words, they'll write code that is more easily used and problem free for if you think it in terms of like how popular and easy to use the software is like if you're trying to start the next Instagram or the next Snapchat or something like that, you take an average software team compared to a really good one. How much better is the product in terms of how many people download it? How many people use it? How much the company gets sold for when it gets bought by Facebook or something like that? It's huge multiple. So when you go to time, for example, so if you go, well, I make $200 a day, $25 an hour, but I actually made half of the money in five minutes. Okay. So you made a hundred dollars in five minutes. That's $1,200 an hour. <laughs> and I'm completely serious when I say this. So there's $10 an hour work. There's $100 an hour work and there's $1,000 an hour work. And if you're in a highly responsible position, there absolutely is $10,000 an hour work. So notice that a $25 an hour receptionist or day laborer or plumber is actually worth $1,200 an hour for five minutes a day. So what about a CEO? Or what about a principal of a school? Or what about any other person with, well, there are routine parts of their day where one or two or three minutes is worth $10,000 an hour. A key decision got made, a key negotiation happened, a disaster was averted. You crash your car, you do $10,000 of damage in 0.3 seconds. Yeah, totally. And I guess, you know, you could you could argue a little bit like, well, the decision or the negotiation was the culmination of many hours of preparation, da 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 da. So can we really clearly attribute all That's of the true. value to that moment? It's sort of like a speaking. I love it when speakers say, you know, find out how I make, you know, ten thousand dollars an hour. It's like, okay, maybe you got ten thousand dollars for a one hour keynote, but, but there was a lot of time. Right. You got <laughs> on a plane and you built yeah. a reputation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, so we have to notice, well, so there's sewing and there's harvesting, but even the sewing has these pivot points. It has these levers. So he's been building his reputation for years, but actually half of the value of his reputation comes from uh, one keynote speech he made or one article that showed up in the New York Times or one podcast or radio program that he got on. Right. Like I had a late, a client years ago who she had an ad on Google that crushed every other ad she ever wrote. And the ad was 
as seen on Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And what had happened was their product had been featured on the Oprah.com website. And that one thing made their entire company and I could track it down to dollars and cents because we ran ad campaigns and we tried all these other ads and the one that said Oprah was at least twice as good. So every single customer they acquired with the Oprah ad cost half as much as all the other kinds of ads that they wrote. So you could pin this huge amount of value just to the fact that they're Product was on Oprah's site and they could brag about it. Oh, yeah. And this is how the world works. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that in terms of once you start talking about sort of thresholds in terms of, you know, hey, there's a threshold amount you could afford to spend to acquire a customer, you know, given mm -hmm. the, the value of what that customer purchases. And so if uh, the difference between a profitable advertising investment and an unprofitable one falls within that chasm between, you know, half the price and full price mm -hmm. uh, per customer acquired, well, then it takes on just tremendous momentum. It's like, well, boom, we're going to reinvest and boom, 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 boom. It's like we have the ability to either kind of create an avalanche of gathering momentum downhill or we don't, you know, based upon whether we cross the threshold. That's right. And usually the success of your company is that sensitive. Usually these things are much more sensitive than people realize. And the difference between success and failure isn't orders of magnitude. It's, it's you know, small percentages. And so, so you, you really need to pay attention to the tiny hinges that swing the big doors. So let's talk about these tiny hinges then. It seems like, you know, in retrospect, you can see, hey, getting on Oprah.com was amazing for us. Or, or that one keynote speech did the trick. Or, hey, you know what? Th that five minutes I spent writing that email really opened up a huge door. So uh, it seems like a lot of this is, is kind of looking backwards. But how do we get proactive in the driver's seat to identify what could those five-minute things be and pack our day with more and more of them? Well, so it starts with saying, okay, so if, if it's really true, it's almost like you have to have faith. Like, just trust me that 1% of your time produced 50% of the value. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to go look for that pattern and we're going to validate that until you can clearly recognize, oh yeah, that's really true. So that means, for example, that means that if you're a sales guy who works on commission, half of your income came from something you did in three days last year. So what did you do in the space of three days? Well, it was almost inevitably some really important client meeting that you were at where a major decision was made and then they decided to cut you a purchase order. Now, you may have invested hundreds of hours in that, but then you break down and you go, okay, but 20% of the people in that meeting made 80% of that decision. Who was it? Well, there were five people in that meeting and the one person in the meeting who made the final decision was the engineering manager. It really came down to him. How many other companies have I sold to where, yeah, there was a software guy and yeah, there was a purchasing person and yeah, there was a contracts person, but it actually did come down to the engineering manager or it did come down to the president of the company. So like a lot of times we go make our case 
whether we're salespeople or even any other kind of people for any other reason, we make our case to people who can say no, but they can't say yes. Like we go talk to the secretary or the receptionist or the junior purchasing person, but they could stop us and they could tell us, no, we're not interested. And then we have nowhere to go, but they can't actually approve the purchase of anything. So Many times you might as well start with the person who actually can say yes. Now, I have found that at some level, I usually know who the person is because it's the person I don't want to go talk to. Oh, interesting. You've got resistance because you could be rejected. Yes. My procrastination (laughs) demons kick in. Like, well, I'll give you an example from the evolution prize. One of the people on my list for a long time to talk to about being a judge. I'm an electrical engineer who's a business consultant, and I'm trying to put together a very hardcore science and technology prize. How am I going to get the scientists to take me seriously? Well, my attorney suggested that I should get judges, and they would also serve the purpose of, well, when there is a discovery, they can adjudicate if there's any controversy about whether they passed or failed. And so for a couple of years, I had this name on my list, George Church from Harvard. He's a leading geneticist at Harvard, and he's a rock star, and everybody in genetics knows who he is. And he was on my list for two years, and I was, I was intimidated. It's like, well, why would this guy talk to me? When I emailed him, I got an email back from him like, oh, 30 minutes later. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really interested. And I thought, I could have gone and talked to this guy two years ago. And anybody who has ever gone and tried to get investment money or had any kind of major decision has been intimidated by this. Or here's another example. When my daughter went to college, we told her, you know, we're, we're only paying for like a third of this. Okay. Like, We don't believe in paying for all of college. We think you need to have some skin in the game. She's like, what? Like, yeah. Like, and so as a result of this, at the end of her senior year, she drives up to Appleton, Wisconsin, which is where the school was. She marches up to the president of this university at some seniors in high school gathering thing that they were having. Right. And she walks up to this guy and she says, Hey, I applied for a scholarship and you didn't give me one. And I think you guys made a mistake. And he's like, uh, uh, well here. Um, so here's what you need to do. And he, he like, he gave her something like, well, here, email me or email my secretary. It was something like that. She got $12,000. Okay. And it's just for having the chutzpah to tell (laughs) the president of university that his faculty made a mistake when they were doling out the scholarship money. (laughs) You know, I did that once in college when I did not get an interview and I really believed it. Uh, It was with Walgreens. They rejected me after the interview, but still, I thought I deserve this interview. You gave it to these guys and not me. Come on now. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, and we have the ability to do stuff like this. All of these people are human beings. And I actually think that the resistance to doing this actually tells us where the opportunities are. If my procrastination demons suddenly start going into overdrive, I go, hey, them guys are telling me something like the fact that they don't want me to do this means it's exactly what I should do. I I find it to be a fairly reliable 
beacon. Yeah, that that's good. And, and it's what's interesting is I think sometimes that procrastination comes from, I don't know, embarrassment in terms of, oh, I, who am I to go up to that person? I'm so lowly and they're so majestic. And I think other times it comes from, boy, this is just a, a this is a hard piece of work. It's like, I got to figure out how to systematize and outsource and automate this thing. And boy, if I did, it would save me just tons of time. But that's hard to do because I've got to take all this knowledge I have and, and turn it into a, a repeatable system and, and train other folks to do it. But boy, once I do it, I can say, you know, slash, you know, multiple hours out of every work week. So I find that procrastination demons can be an indicator. One, because these 80-20 types of activities often involve put yourself out there to, uh, you know, a, a big decision maker that you're scared of being rejected by. And two, they, procrastination tends to come when you're just like, ugh, that sounds hard and exhausting and like a whole lot right now. You know, there's another side to this coin, which is the temptation to go bleed off some of your energy doing something really trivial. Okay, so when I am working on a project that is going to move the needle. So here's an example. One time, uh, a long time ago, I had a friend come up to me in a seminar and he goes, Perry, I have a million dollar idea for you. And he goes, I'm completely serious. I am so serious about this that if you sell a million dollars from doing this, I want you to give $10,000 to my favorite charity, which is an inner city school in Philadelphia. And I'm like, you're serious? And he goes, dead serious. And I go, okay. And he sits down and he, he maps out this whole thing. He goes, hey, I think you could do this program. And I think this is the sort of people that would want to buy it. I knew he was right. And I put it together. Okay. Well, the most important part of putting that together was I had to sit down and write a sales page for this thing. And every time I would sit down and start, like I was putting it off and putting it on. And one afternoon I sit down, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I got this extremely loud voice in my head that said, Perry, you need to go get a haircut. <laughs> and I was like a haircut. Like, I don't even like getting haircuts. Like, I don't like chatty barbers. Like, why do I want to get a haircut? Because this is so important. If you do this, it's going to change your career. And your like lizard brain knows this. And so the procrastination demons are going crazy. And I said, okay, that means this is going to work. And I did it and it did. About now, it wasn't immediate. It was probably two or three years later. There was this whole part of my business that I started that hadn't existed before, and it it did accumulate a million dollars of revenue. And I wrote the ten thousand dollar check to his inner city school, and uh, and so I really believe in the power of the procrastination demons to tell you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And if you're overwhelmingly tempted to go on Twitter right now, it's probably because you've got important work to do that you're avoiding. Yeah, boy, this was reminding me of the book by Stephen Pressfield, The uh, War of Art. Yes. Yes. In which he talks a lot about resistance in, in very like mm -hmm. aggressive militaristic terms. Yes. I was like, man, yes. this guy's intense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that was 
the idea I, I captured from that in in a nutshell, and and you just articulated that. Yes, all the more succinctly. <laughs> he was very poetic about it. He's a great writer, but uh, well, well that, that's awesome. So so we, we look for resistance. We, we look kind of historically at what do we see happening there, and I think I find that it's almost like a, the, these things. They're almost like kind of no duh. You know, in a way for me, they're boring. It's like, this is not like a super exciting, innovative thing. It's just like, duh, do this. For example, uh, I don't know how, for how long I, I've had um, someone who's got a, a great podcast with good overlap to me said, oh, hey, Pete, you know, just let me know when you want to be at my show. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, he's already said yes. <laughs> the, the, that's the hard part is the invitation is extended. And then I, I've been sort of uh, dragging my feet because like, well, I don't know. I want to find a really good time. But it's like, but when, when is there a better time? The podcast can <laughs> shut down. A lot of them do. If you wait for like a, a year or two, it might not even be there anymore. That's true. And it's just kind of like, that's not a really innovative idea. Like say, hey guy, I want to go ahead and do that thing now. And yet there are, are many things that fall into that zone. And, and, and I've just sort of even in my task management system, I use OmniFocus. I have a little tag called duh. Hmm. <laughs> like it's just blindingly obvious that hmm. this is so worth doing and is highly leveraged. And and sometimes I avoid it just because it's not cool and innovative and new and hip and fresh and fun. It's just kind of boring. Like, oh, I guess yeah. I got to sit down and write this email. Like, uh, but it's, it's like we already knew that was coming. So it's not a dopamine hit to execute it. So yeah, a lot of times these levers, you have to drill down into them and you have to build some kind of a structure that wasn't there before. So if you look back and you figure out that, oh yeah, the deciding factor on all these projects has been the architect. And if we could get specced in by the architect for all these building jobs, then everything else is easier. Well, then... And why is that? It's because, you know, you would have these 10 minute, you'd have these huge projects and these huge meetings and hours and hours and hours of all this stuff. But then a 10 minute conversation with an architect was what sealed the deal. Well, now that means that you have to go proactively go find the architects, which means you have to get the list of them and you have to, maybe you have to go and contact them. And maybe there's certain information that you have to have ready to go. And it's, it's probably this whole other project that wasn't even on your, your radar, except it saves you 500 hours of labor next year of whatever it was you normally going to do. And it also usually means that you're getting rid of stuff that used to be sacrosanct. Maybe an entire department was created for the purpose of doing something that turns out to not be necessary if you could just get these architects on board. And so now somebody's defending their turf and they don't want to change. These are the kind of things that keep us from living 80-20. Yeah, that's a good thing to highlight there is there, there could be resistance from all sorts of things, like your own kind of self-consciousness your own you know, laziness <laughs> your own, uh, or sort of externally in terms of there are forces that have something to gain by keeping it as it is. So, so that's good to, to flag that and to expect it and to be prepared for it. Perry, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Well, I just, I want you to take this really seriously. 80, 20 is everywhere. So I'm looking out my tree in my front yard 
and 20% of the branches carry 80% of the sap and the 20% of the roads carry 80% of the traffic and 1% of the roads carry 50% of the traffic. And so these levers are everywhere. Like it is not possible to even look out a window and 80, 20, not to be right in front of your face. And so maybe the last thing I would say is most people think in terms of averages and people should be thinking exponentially. So here's an example. So a whole bunch of kids take a history test in school and the average is 77. Well, to the teacher who's trying to please everybody, the 77 is an, is an important number. But the 77 doesn't matter to almost anybody else in the whole entire world. And if you're hiring teachers or you're hiring historians, there's one kid in the class who will do more history stuff in his life than all the other 29 kids in the class combined. And that's the one you care about. And that's the one you want to hire. And so even with your talents and skills, most of your value is in two or three or four core talent areas and almost everything else is trivia. And whether you learned social studies or whether you did PE class right or whether you did all these other things probably doesn't matter at all. And there's a few things that matter a lot. And so if you can make the shift, you'll never see the world the same way again. Once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Powerful. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Okay, so there's a guy named Jacques E. Lull, and he was a theologian in the 1960s. And he said one of the most profound things I've heard in a long time. He said, societies used to contain technologies. Now technologies contain entire societies. Now he said this in the 60s. Can you just stop and think how true this is now? How many communities of people exist almost entirely on the internet or almost entirely on a Facebook group? I see this because the big internet platforms are starting to censor. They're starting to ban people. For years and years and years, they've been killing businesses for various reasons. And so Free speech is incredibly, incredibly important, especially now. And all of us have, there's people we would like for them to go away and we cannot succumb to the temptation. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, this would be one from the Evolution 2.0 project. One of my, probably my favorite scientists is Barbara McClintock. And she figured out in the 1940s that corn plants could rearrange their own genetics. Hmm. And this was a far more ex important experiment than most people realize because, so she went to a symposium in 1951 and she presented seven years of very, very careful research. And half of them laughed at her and the other half were angry. They were like, woman, genetics create plants. Plants do not recreate genetics. And she was basically driven underground for the next 20 years, but she won the Nobel Prize in 1983. Well, now, why is this relevant now? Well, I'll tell you, here's why. It's because there's a technology now called CRISPR, 
where we can edit jeans as easily as a blog post. You can buy a $169 gene editing kit on Amazon with free shipping. And there's mm-hmm. people all over the world that are editing genes willy-nilly. And they think we're smarter than the cells are. We're not. The cells are smarter than us. And Barbara McClintock proved this in 1944. And how about a favorite book? Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. No. Why on earth would I bring up this book? It was written in 1835. It describes Americans better than any other book that I've ever seen. And it's still true now. And the book is really a book about the march of the idea of equality and civilization. And when you read this book, TV didn't exist. Radio didn't exist. International travel didn't exist unless you got on a steamship for three months. I guess maybe that was international travel. But, you know, like most of the things that create equality, like the Internet, didn't exist when he wrote that book. Nevertheless, he still got all this right. And so if, if you read Democracy in America and then you you take all of his predictions and insights and you just fast forward another hundred years, you can really predict the future. So probably not a book that very many people on a podcast like this would bother to mention, but I've actually read it three or four times. It's absolutely brilliant. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. Well, it's a little self-serving, but it's, it's one of the most useful tools I've ever used in my profession. It's the marketing DNA test. It's at marketingdnatest.com. And what it does is it, whether you're in sales or marketing or not, it tells you how you persuade. Some people persuade with stories. Some people persuade with numbers and graphs. Some people persuade by proving to you how reliable and approved and well standardized something is. Other people sell to you by showing you how new and innovative and flashy and incredible something is. Some people persuade by just being completely in the moment. Some people persuade by meticulously crafting a letter for three weeks. And if you know how you persuade, then you know how you're going to persuade better next time. And you're going to know what situations you should avoid because they don't play to your strengths. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? Best habit I've ever cultivated is an hour of journaling every morning before I do anything else. And I'm literally religious about it. And I think most people have way too much stimulation, way too much energy, and you cannot think your own thoughts and the thoughts of somebody else at the same time. And you need to figure out what your thoughts are before you engage with the media and the texting and the social media and all of your friends and your email boxes stacked up to the ceiling. You need time to listen, time to reflect, time to intuit, time to prioritize. That is the best habit that I have ever cultivated. And is there a particular nugget you share in your books or or speaking or working with clients that really seems to connect and resonate with them and they repeat it back to you often? Nobody who bought a drill wanted a drill. They wanted a hole. So instead of selling drills, you should sell information about making holes. You say information about making holes. Can you give an example? Well, so I want to drill a hole. 
Well, maybe if you make drills, you know more about making holes than 99% of all the people in the world. So there's how to drill holes in plaster, how to drill holes in metal, how to drill holes in rock, how to drill holes in concrete, how to drill holes in plastic, how to drill holes in wood. In an information-driven society, the way you develop credibility is by demonstrating your expertise. And you demonstrate your expertise by showing people how to solve very, 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 very specific problems. And that actually engenders a lot more trust and credibility than just waving your carbon graphite diamond tipped drill bits in the air and telling everybody how awesome they are and all of the ISO 9000 quality control systems that they pass through because people are interested in their hole, not your drill. All right. Thank you. And Perry, if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, go to perrymarshall.com. And I would suggest that you click on the link that says 8020 and buy 8020 sales and marketing for a penny plus shipping. It'll cost you $7 in the U.S. and $14 outside the U.S. And if you read that book, even if you're not in sales or marketing, that book will change your life. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? In your life, 1% of what you do will determine 50% of what you get. So you don't have to get most of it right. You need to get 1% of it right. If you nail 1%, you will be successful. It's not as hard as you think. Perry, this has been a, lots of fun. I wish you tons of luck in nailing your 1% opportunities and, and keep up the good work. Hey, it was great talking to you, Pete. And it's an honor to be on your show and uh, look forward to seeing you again. I was really inspired by what Perry had to say about those five minutes can just make a huge impact on what is going on. And you can find five minutes, even in an insane, urgent, rush, rush, fire drill to the next thing after thing after thing kind of a day, you can find those five minutes to do something huge. And and it happened just today. I had an idea and I thought, oh, I should reach out to someone. We could do a fun little partnership thing. And so I, I could have let that thought bubble away. But no, I, I wrote down a, a draft of that email. I will refine it. I will send it and we'll see if it produces massive results. It could. And that took just five minutes and it would have been easy to not do. But if you take the time to do that reflection, get to the bottom of what's really the tiny hinge that swings the huge door, it could just be so extraordinarily powerful. I recommend doing a little bit of reflection in terms of what were those tiny hinges that swung the big doors for you the last year in your career or in terms of the results you created for your organization and what were the commonalities and what was like the thing that, that did the trick that unlocked it all. Very worthwhile reflection. Thanks to Perry for the good stuff. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. We have got Ryan Berman, and he is talking about courage, how to have more of it. Until next time, in peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.